glad that Jacob has consented to fill in the pulpit for us this morning, and we pray that he would tell us what God has told him to tell us. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Thank you, worship team. That was wonderful. Thank you, Barb, for sharing. It's a blessing to be with you today. Well, let's pray and then we'll get into the word this morning. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you that you are Lord of all and that we can uh, trust you with, with our lives, Lord. We thank you for your power that we sang about this morning. We thank you for the testimony of your power in changing lives, Lord, and transforming hearts to be like you. Father, I pray that for each one of us today, that you'd use your word to speak to our hearts, that you would touch us uh, with your truth, that you would help us to uh, rest in your power, God, and uh, your glory, and uh, to know that you are there to, to work in our lives in, in powerful ways. Thank you for this time and pray your blessing upon it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so often today we are confronted with power struggles. For mankind, the quest for power has become an all-consuming endeavor. We see power struggles in the Middle East, power struggles in governments, power struggles in schools, and power struggles in the home. We want power over the things that we watch, power over those around us, and power to make our own decisions. Nations want power over planets. People want power over their rivals, and the enemy of our souls wages his war for power on the earth. And in this world, with its quest for power, we have to ask the question, do we trust the power of Jesus? Today we'll be looking at a passage that displays the power of the Lord Jesus over the forces of evil. It is his power that can bring life and peace, salvation to those who receive his grace into our lives. Let's look at scripture together. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 8, the gospel of Luke chapter 8. Verse 26 through 39. Luke 8, 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. 
He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So this passage, this section in Luke comes in the middle of a number of passages that demonstrate Jesus's power. That is what Luke is really trying to communicate in these passages here. If you look just a little bit before, there's the account of Jesus calming a storm. This demonstrates his power over creation. In the passage here in Luke that we just read, he demonstrates his power over the spiritual world. By delivering the demon-possessed man. In the following verses, he shows his power over physical health by healing the woman who had a discharge of blood. And then finally, he shows his power over death by healing Jairus' daughter. So we see in this passage in Luke, uh, this amazing description of Jesus' power. We're going to look for a minute at the account immediately preceding of Jesus calming a storm. If you remember, Jesus had invited his disciples to go to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. So they were on the uh, west side of the Lake of Galilee, and Jesus wanted to go over to the other side, which is in modern-day Jordan. And Jesus lays down in the boat and falls asleep. You know, Presumably, he was really exhausted from all the ministry that he had been doing. And a great windstorm came upon the lake. And the disciples were filled with fear. Here were these fishermen on the sea, the raging sea with the wind. And for a fisherman, this must have been an awful storm. You know, people who are familiar with the waters because they wake him and they say, Master, we are perishing. Perhaps this was as threatening as maybe a tornado or a a strong hailstorm today. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the wind and the waves and they ceased and there was a great calm. He literally stopped the wind from blowing and the sea from raging. 
What amazing power over creation. The disciples were amazed and noticed that they were no longer afraid of the wind. They were afraid of the power that Jesus possessed. It says in verse 25 there, and they were afraid and they marveled. They said, who then is this? Who is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. Who is this man who has such power over the winds and the water? You see through this that the disciples knew that this experience showed them that there was much more Jesus than just meets the eye. The disciples perhaps were reminded of verses they may have studied as children, like Psalm 135.7, which says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Or Psalm 148, 7 through 8, Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Fulfilling his word. This was no ordinary man. His actions clearly contain the echoes of the power of the Yahweh, the power of the God of Israel, the sovereign God of the universe. So Jesus has power over the physical creation, but what about the spiritual world? It's here that we come to our passage in Luke 8.26. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So after this storm, uh, you know, they were on the sea and after this storm had calmed, they continue sailing on to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This would be toward modern day Jordan. The country of the Gerasenes was named for an ancient city in Jordan, which today is known as Jerash. I was able to actually visit this ancient city uh, several years ago when I was there in Jordan. And it really is a marvel of ancient architecture. We're talking about a, a very big uh, city in that, that day and age. Uh, it is one of the most well-preserved Greco-Roman cities of its day. And while many structures in the city were built later in the second century, it was a prominent city during Jesus' time. And it was this reason, region across the Jordan that Jesus finds this man who is struggling so deeply. In verse 27, it says, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So Jesus and his disciples are sailing, and they arrive at the shore on the eastern side of Sea of Galilee, and immediately they are greeted by this man. The text says that he was a man from the city. And we know from Matthew 8:28 that there were actually two men, but for Luke's purposes he only mentions the one here. He's focusing on this one man. This city that is spoken of could have been Jerash itself or another smaller city near the Sea of Galilee, but either way, Luke makes it clear that he no longer lived in the city but among the tombs. Now we have to understand what these things mean with regard to Jesus' interactions with this man. Luke says that he had worn no clothes. Apparently he was naked. 
He had nothing to warm himself with, nothing to cover himself with. A shameful thing in that time. Luke also mentions that he was homeless. He had not lived in a house. I work with many individuals who have been homeless in my work as a substance use counselor. And I can say that it's often a very demeaning and incredibly discouraging experience. Several of my clients have suggested that they would do anything to avoid being homeless again. Can you imagine what what that's like? Imagine for a moment having no shelter, being exposed to the elements, scrounging for food where you can get it. Imagine not having a car for one and then imagine not having a house. There were no dumpsters in this time period, no fast food restaurants or grocery stores to get a quick bite. Homelessness is truly a painful and often demeaning experience. So he was naked, he was homeless, and he lived among the tombs. In other words, to kind of sum this up, this man was an outcast of all outcasts. He would have been the lowest of the low. He was naked, he was homeless. He did not have a home, rather he was a home for these demons. And he lived among the tombs. Jews often believed that the souls of evil dead people lived in cemeteries at that time. So basically that, you know, people that had died, their souls, you know, if they were evil people would, uh, you know, be in that area, in the tombs, in the, among the tombs. Yet we know from scripture that demons were really the source of this man's difficulties. Now to define what is meant here by demons, scripture is speaking of fallen angels. Spirits who rebelled, some believe when Satan rebelled, they fell with him and served his purposes in the world. And while we don't don't have much description about how these angels fell, we do know that demon influence and demon possession is a very real thing. I know you talk to a lot of you know people on the mission field, especially in Africa. I know Mike has had some experience uh, with people who are dealing with demonic oppression or demonic possession. So notice the effect that the demons were having on this man in verse 28. It says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. He sees Jesus and cries out. This has this idea of a very loud, passionate cry. And he fell down before Jesus. The the word here suggests that he was just face down. He was just flat on the ground before Jesus. He was undone by reverence for Jesus and who he was. Mark 5.5 states of this man, gives a little bit more description. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This was a frightening man. Night and day, he's crying and yelling. He's cutting himself with stones, trying to relieve his oppression. Matthew adds in chapter 8, verse 28, that he was so fierce that no one could pass that way. So fierce that no one could pass that way. He calls out to Jesus, what have you to do with me? What do you want with me? 
And here we see that this was not just a chance encounter. It's not was not just uh, a man that Jesus happened to uh, encounter. Jesus had a purpose in coming to meet this man. Jesus was sailing to the east side of Galilee for a purpose. He calls Jesus by name, Jesus, son of the most high God. There was an understanding that Jesus was no mere man. That his power was far beyond that. His power was the power of God himself. Note that he begs Jesus not to torment him. In Matthew it mentions, torment us before the time. The demons know their fate. They know that ultimately they're destined for the lake of fire. Matthew 25:41 describes the end for Satan and his angels. Then he, Jesus, will say to those on his left, "Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." There is a judgment coming for Satan and his followers. And I think it's important to remember this because we often live in a society that is filled with kind of a sense of dualism when it comes to good and evil. So to give an example, I really enjoy uh, the Lord of the Rings books and movies. And whatever your view on the Lord of the Rings, uh, there can be no doubt that, that the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, was an incredible writer and artist, had a gift for imagination. And he had this gift in creating this fantasy world of hobbits and dwarves and elves and orcs and trolls and all these numerous other creatures. But one of the aspects of this story and and the aspects of many stories that we see today is this, this pitting of good against evil, where it often feels like there's this tug of war. In other words, there's no there's no real clear winner until the end. It's kind of like it could go either way. You know, you have the forces of evil on this side, the forces of good don't quite know how it's going to end up. Dualism can be defined in this way. In religion, dualism means the belief in two supreme opposed powers or gods or sets of divine or demonic beings that cause the world to exist. So in essence, it's this idea that God and his angels are over here pulling for their side and Satan and his demons are basically equal and pulling over here for their side. And we don't quite know who will win out in the end. But this is not a scriptural idea. A while back, I was, I was thinking about this conception that we often have of, of hell and what that is in our culture. And most of the time, Satan, you know, if you see those cartoons, Satan is depicted as kind of the ruler or, or the king of hell, and he's seen as the one in charge. But this is not what scripture teaches. Satan is not in charge of hell. He will be cast into hell. He will be tormented in the lake of fire as punishment for his evil, along with the demons. So why does, why does this matter? Why does this idea of dualism and uh, scriptural understanding matter? It means we can have confidence in the absolute sovereign power of God over the spiritual realm. He will win out in the end. Satan and his demons may have great influence in the world, but their influence is always subservient to the sovereign rule of God. We don't have to be afraid of the power of demons. There is a greater power at work that is wielded by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the demons were afraid. Why were they afraid? Jesus was commanding them to come out. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Luke gives us a picture of this man's oppression. He says that it had often seized him. The idea is to take something and drag it by force. And apparently there were certain times where this demon-possessed man was literally controlled by the demon. He experienced these episodes of demon control. And note what those around had tried to do. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, apparently in the city that he was from. The word indicates a military guard. When we think of earthly earthly power, many of us might think of the military. Even in this city, soldiers, the strongest, most highly trained, powerful individuals were unable to keep this man from violence. To keep this man under control. He was bound with chains and shackles. The words imply uh, wrists and ankles. And he just tore these bonds apart when this demon would come upon him and overpower him and drag him away. This man was possessed by a power to make anyone frightened. He was uncontrollable. Think of a horse that cannot be broken or a wild bull that gores anyone who comes near. It is interesting to note that he would be driven out into the desert, an uncultivated, uninhabited place, a place where death was much more likely. In verse 30, Jesus confronts him. Jesus then asks him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Jesus asks him his name. In the ancient world, names had a lot more meaning than they do today. Often a name would be considered descriptive of the person itself. We see in the Old Testament a lot of times that that is the case. Uh, in terms of Isaac, the name Isaac means he laughs, in reference to uh, Sarah laughing when God told her she would have a son. Even the name Jesus, which means God is salvation, it tells something about his character and his purpose. And so Jesus asks him, what is your name? And we find here that there is more than just one demon inhabiting this man. Legion was a group of soldiers in the Roman army. We're talking about five or 6,000 soldiers. So clearly this man was possessed by a large number of demons. Verse 31 and 32, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. They knew the power of Jesus. They were begging not to depart into the abyss. This abyss is mentioned in Revelation 9.1 and is also known as the bottomless pit. Jews would have understand this as the home of the dead and of evil spirits. And we don't know exactly what they were afraid of, but presumably if they departed into the abyss, they would not be able to continue to be active in influencing the world. Jesus concedes, he gives them permission that they can enter these pigs 
on the hillside, an unclean animal in that time. We know from Mark that there are about 2,000 pigs, and so Jesus gives them permission to enter the pigs. Again, we see the power of Jesus over the forces of darkness, that they need his permission to do anything. Verse 33 and 34, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. The demons came out of the man, entered these pigs. After entering these pigs, they ran headlong into the Sea of Galilee. And then this must have been pretty traumatic, if you can imagine, for the herdsmen. I mean, imagine 2,000 pigs, 2,000 pigs that you're herding, your entire, probably your entire livelihood. Perhaps these herdsmen were even watching these pigs for someone else. Simply gone into, into the sea. The herdsmen could not believe what they had seen. They fled and spread the news of what had seen, what they had seen. You can't imagine what, what I just saw. You can imagine them telling their, their friends and their neighbors. Luke 8.35, then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Everyone came to see this man, demon-possessed, who nearly everyone no doubt had heard about or knew about. He was there, sitting at the feet of Jesus. The man that no one could control. The man that was screaming, yelling, cutting himself so fierce that no one would dare come near him, was sitting near Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Jesus can transform even the most desperate outcast. I work with many individuals who are struggling with uh, severe mental illness and addictions, and many of them are often struggling spiritually as well. And this, this truth here that Jesus can transform even the most desperate is crucially important to me in, in my work. While Jesus doesn't always heal in the same way that he healed the demon-possessed man, there is hope for even those the world considers hopeless. How many people from that city must have written this man off as a hopeless case? And yet Jesus comes and he heals. He brings deliverance. So who do you consider hopeless in your life today? Is it maybe a family member or someone in the community? It could be an unbelieving spouse or child or relative, maybe a coworker who despises the Lord. Maybe you feel hopeless. Maybe you're suffering from bondage of addiction or depression, anxiety, hate, lust, oppression, discouragement. There is hope, hope in the power of Jesus, hope in the power of Jesus over the spiritual realm. Look to him when all seems lost. He has the power to deliver. He has the power to save. No one is beyond his saving and redeeming power. It's probable that one of these disciples gave this man an an outer cloak to, to wear. He was sitting there clothed. 
And he was in his right mind. The word means sober-minded. In other words, not influenced this way or that by anything. Sober-minded, thinking clearly. And notice that the people here were afraid. I would probably be too if I was in their shoes. Here was someone with power over the power of demons. Power over a man who was uncontrollable. Jesus, the King of Kings. When you see something or someone that has tremendous power, there's this sense of awe and wonder, but also an understanding of what that power can do, a sense of fear. The people told those who had come what had happened. He had been healed. The word literally here is saved or delivered. If Jesus can deliver the demon-possessed man, who can he not deliver? The people were terrified. Instead of responding in joy, they responded in, in fear. Luke eight thirty seven. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. They asked Jesus to depart. He came, he healed the demon-possessed man, and then they asked him to leave. The man was no more being seized by these demons, but now the people were seized with fear. What is the source of this fear? As we mentioned before, the power of God, when you see something powerful, it always leads to reverence and awe. And for us as believers, that reverence and awe leads to worship as we reflect on the power of God and what a great God we serve. For those who reject Christ, this power brings a fear that leads them further away from him. Jesus, the one who could have brought peace and healing to their entire region, was rejected. They didn't want this man who had power over the spiritual realm. This was too much. They hadn't come into contact with someone quite like this. It seemed as though they had a greater fear of Jesus than the demon-possessed man. Jesus did not override their request. He, he left. Luke eight thirty-eight through 39 The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This man's response is quite the opposite of the people. He begs to become one of Jesus' disciples. He wants to follow him. He wants to be with him. If Jesus has this power, I want to be with him. But Jesus here had another mission, a greater purpose. He sends him out to be a missionary of sorts in his own town. He says, return to your home. Go back to your city, the city where everyone knows you as the man who can't be controlled, as the man who's crying out, who's cutting himself with stones, who's so fierce. Go back to your city and tell those people about the power of God. 
In this we see the mercy of Jesus. Even with those who rejected him, he was sending this man to be a living testimony of his power to the people of that region. All throughout this passage, we see the mercy and love of Jesus for people. He sends this man to be a missionary. He had a unique mission strategy. This man had no credentials, no money, no material possessions, no house. But what he did have was a testimony. A testimony of what Jesus had done for him. You know, you don't have to be a a super Christian to, to be a missionary or to give your testimony. You just have to be willing to go where God calls and to testify of his work in your life. Could be down the road, could be across the world. So what is your testimony? What can you share about what God has done in your life? It's not to just flow out of us as we experience the power and goodness of God that we are wanting to share that with other people. What do you have to share with others? Jesus tells this man to declare how much God has done for you. And here Jesus hints at his divine nature. Declare how much God has done for you. Jesus, God in human flesh, is the one who delivered this man. God is the author of deliverance. The man obeyed Jesus. He went away proclaiming all that Jesus had done for him. And you can have no no doubts that uh, many who heard him were probably impacted by his message. Maybe their interest was piqued and they said, who is this Jesus? Let's go find out. So I want to leave you with these three thoughts today, these three questions. Number one, where is God sending you? Could be near, could be far. You might already be where he has sent you. Where is God sending you? Number two, what has he given you to proclaim? What is your testimony of his work in your life? That's the amazing thing is that we all have different testimonies. We all have different experiences of how God has worked in our life. What is your testimony? What has he given you to proclaim about? And number three, do you trust in the power of Jesus to accomplish his work? To accomplish his work as you share his word, to give you victory, power over the enemy and the spiritual forces of this world, that in the midst of all of that we can have confidence I want to close with this passage from Colossians that really should lead us to worship and, and praise Jesus for his victory and power. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful um, that you sent Jesus to display your power Lord, over 
creation, over the spiritual realm, over physical health, over life and death. Lord, in every area of our life, I pray that you would help us to know your power, God, to trust your power, to believe your power. And God, as we go from this place, I pray that you would send us to the people you want us to reach, that you would help us to be willing to share our testimony of what you've done in our lives, Lord, how you've delivered us, how you've given us new life, new hope, peace. God, empower us by your spirit to, uh, to minister to those around us. And continue to guide us, God, to trust you uh, in this church uh, as we look to the, maybe the next season, what that looks like, God. Help us to lean on you and to trust you through it all. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.